Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kemp, host and creator of the podcast. I welcome you to my final season of the show with the theme titled Finishing the Crumbs, as I am officially wrapping up this year for good. I hope you enjoy the episodes for the season. Happy listening, everybody. Hi everyone, this is Randy from the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. So I am here with a dear friend, Alec Fun. Alec Fun, using he, they pronouns, is a queer trans Viet American theater artist based in Chicago. He was last seen as John in an all trans and gender non-conforming production of Tick Tick Boom, an autobiographical musical created posthumously from solo works of Rent creator Jonathan Larson. An actor, divisor, and musician himself, Alec believes in the power of collaborative storytelling to heal hearts and shift paradigms. So I wanna say that I knew Alec for almost a decade and in part thanks to I2I and shout out to I2I for the wonderful work that they have been doing over the years. And I had the pleasure of seeing you perform and tick tick boom this year, and this is the reason why I want to talk to you about the uh, why I, why I wanted to bring you on to the show is because of 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 how important it is to talk about uh, trans and queer casting, and I want to talk more about it later on. But how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm so on. It sounds super basic, but I'm so glad that the weather has cooled down because that. I was not about that 98 degree weather life. Like it's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm relishing, relishing in the cooler temperature today for sure. I, I hate to bring the bad news. I know this today is August 29th, uh time check timestamp there, but it's gonna get hot again next week. So <laughs> I've heard that, yes. So trying to endure. Yeah, I was at a Guns N' Roses show last week at Wrigley Field at possibly the hottest day ever and it was so rough oh and I'm goodness. like oh my god how can I handle this and luckily there was a cool breeze by the lake like they came in like towards the end of the sh- towards the middle of the show and I was like oh my gosh this is this has been like was I was Thursday? several hours into- was on- oh what was it it was on Thursday what day of the week yeah yeah absolutely yeah it, it was, was the wild. hottest day it was yeah, so I mean, we've been very fortunate with the heat this summer, but we we're getting the late we're getting the latter end of it. So, but yeah, and also happy Virgo uh, season to you. It's your birthday, so I want to say happy birthday to you. Thank you so much for wishing me happy birthday. Uh, my birthday is right at the start of Virgo season, and in theory, I should feel kind of empowered by the season because I have both a Virgo sun and a Virgo um, approaching the end of summer. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for being on my show, too. And I know that you have been getting into acting. You've also been a musician for uh, for a while, too. And I'm curious to know, where did the spark to get into stage theater come from? Oh, um, definitely from my family. Um, I'm I'm the only one from my generation, at least, who has uh, like pursued the arts professionally, but as you know, my my mother was a professional singer in Vietnam in um, the sixties and the seventies, and I think the appreciation for the arts um, came from her, but also spans both sides of my family. Um, all my siblings were were theater kids in high school, so when it came around to be my turn, it just kind of stuck, um, and I went on to do it professionally. 
Yeah, I'm curious about your mom's experience as a singer too. What was that like for her back in the 60s and 70s? I mean, I believe it was, it was in the 60s and 70s? 60s and 70s, yeah. Wow. It's interesting. It's an interesting um, uh, question for me to think about because um, she's definitely, you know, as I mentioned, the source of, of a really deep appreciation for music in my family. Um, I, I'd say that my voice sounds a lot like hers. I'd say that my face looks a lot like hers. So we are very similar as like just humans. Um, but on the one hand, she was able to make a living, like a like a whole ass living, you know, <laughs> from her art at a very young age um, mm -hmm. in that decade in South Vietnam. Um, whereas that's not quite as possible here in America at present day. So the kind of difference in our circumstances and the resources that are available to us as artists um, uh, has been uh, like interesting to navigate um, in terms of our relationship. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder uh, if she was always envious of the singers in Paris by night and, you know, especially as the years go on in America, being in America, I wonder how much of an impact not being able to practice her art publicly uh, must have had some level of impact, especially when you when you're struggling to survive and or, uh, you know watching many generations of Vietnamese singers uh, perform. Yeah, I think it's possible. I I think that she made a really clear choice um, in her life. Uh, you know, towards towards the mid '80s to to stop. Um, performing professionally because she was like after she moved to the United States with my father and a couple of my siblings like she was still performing every once in a while publicly um, but then I think she, the choice she made was to like devote her life to raising children which was a really intentional and really uh, significant choice for her um, so she's had like there are folks who've reached out to her for interviews or even to make appearances on shows like Perry by Night but uh, it, it's just not it's not a life that she wants to, uh, lifestyle, I should say, that she wants to tap into anymore um, because it is like vastly different from the one she chose, you know? Yeah, and I think that's that's such an interesting, uh, that's an interesting uh, choice that, that she made for herself, but also for hers and also for your family as well. And I wonder like the impact that her being an artist had on you growing up and, uh, was she able to teach you the skills? Was she uh, raising you to also perform in, in some way? <laughs> I think definitely the appreciation is the, the, the largest thing that I um, inherited from her. Um, this like skills and uh, techniques and stuff like that, I picked up elsewhere, but it's it was just like the culture of, of valuing the way that you can uh, like use use your voice to influence people and use your voice to tell stories um, was something that she instilled in me, like even as a child. Um, not only was she, you know, a mother of, of five kids in our house, she was also a child caretaker for a really long time. That was her career in the United States. Um, and her, the use of her voice kind of dominated the way she took care of children. Um, so, you know, being raised by her, was effectively being raised by someone who, who who taught using song and taught using stories, you know, using her voice. And that really influenced me for sure. Yeah. What kind of music did you end up getting more into uh, growing up? And also what was the genre that your uh, mom was, uh, was, uh, what kind of, uh, what music did your mom perform? 
<laughs> That's an interesting question. My my personal taste is kind of all over the place. Um, I I um, have a weird affinity for like medieval European music, <laughs> but my mom's um, genre was sort of like a like a very poppy sound from the '60s. So she was essentially a pop singer. Um, you know, a lot of the popular music that came out of Vietnam during that time was influenced by French music. So it's got like. Mm if you know who Francoise Hardy is or like folks from that generation, it's got many influences from the like French pop of the sixties, um, but with the Vietnamese flair. Um, so a lot of the old recordings that we've got of her, like have that vibe, but like with the kind of fuller sound of a full band, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. What was the interest in, that you had with medieval music? Cause I have seen you perform several years ago and I absolutely was floored by it. Absolutely. That comes, I think, from my my um, interest in Shakespeare, which was sort of my first foothold in the world of theater. Um, I started doing like youth Shakespeare at a really formative time in my adolescence. Um, it was after my elder brother passed away. So it was like a, a time that I needed a lot of structure emotionally. And um, this kind of Shakespeare group helped me find that. And through, you know, learning about um, Elizabethan performance, I learned about the music and then you know, it just kind of spiraled from there. And to make a shift from going from music to stage theater, what did you learn about the Chicago theater scene prior to getting involved in acting? <laughs> Not as much as I should have, if I'm totally honest. I think um, I think I had heard and seen some work by like the larger, more successful houses in the suburbs, you know, such as. Um, writers or Looking Glass or Court Theater. Um, those are kind of some big houses in the suburbs around here. Um, but I knew next to nothing or very little of the really rich storefront scene that I would eventually become a part of. Um, I, If I'm totally honest, I mostly moved to Chicago because of the proximity to Wisconsin, um, which is where I'm from. Um, and it seemed like the most logical choice in comparison to LA or New York, which is where, you know, people tend to go if they're trying to pursue acting. Um, but yeah, I, I came here and discovered the the small storefront scene and it, the rest is history. You know? As a VA trans person, were you at all concerned about how casting companies would respond to your intersectional identities? It's mm, a really good question. Um, I think that when I was younger, I was um, I was lucky enough to have been given a lot of significant performance opportunities that were both, um, I'm gonna say both race and gender blind, which is to say that these these youth groups that I was working with and, and these academic theater productions were, were making their casting choices without what we typically think of as discrimination, but also without intention, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, so when I came to Chicago, I was ready to, you know, like throw hands and resist any form of open racism and discrimination. Um, and I was ready to to like uh, take up space in the ways that I had had the privilege to in Wisconsin. But I ended up learning a lot about um, what it means to truly work intentionally towards equity and representation, like in casting once I got here. Um, you know, everything everything from knowing your type as a performer to pushing the boundaries of that type and even uh, limiting those boundaries when they start to uh, like bleed into territory that is perhaps better suited to a different performer from like a 
another underrepresented identity group. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I know you cannot speak for everyone in theater. And I want to be very clear about that, too, because you're speaking from your own personal experiences. And what were the other challenges that you also face as an actor pursuing live theater in Chicago? <laughs> uh, wow, I I'm an overthinker. So there's a lot I could say here. I th but but I think starting broadly for for every artist, I think there is a really specific combination of um, like our internal personal struggles and external systemic issues that make pursuing one's craft really challenging. Like there's a specific combination for every artist that makes it hard. Um, for me, for my part, I'm a, I'm a queer person. I'm a brown person. I'm a neurodivergent person with a, like an unstandard body type. So I'm, I'm like full of self-doubt, right? And I'm trying to make it in this industry that requires you to essentially like fake it in confidence until you make it, you know? Mm. Um, but I think the overarching challenge for me is, is the cultural culture-wide lack of value placed in the arts. Um, because there's no question uh, in my mind whether whether my craft acting theater is is important um, to America. Um, I feel like Americans are obsessed with the entertainment industry and, and Americans rely on it in times of crisis if 2020 is any sort of indication of that. Mm -hmm. um, but but acting uh, as a profession, I think, is deeply misunderstood and and really, really underfunded. Um, most of the actors that I know uh, have to earn their income, their livelihood um, through other sources in order to make ends meet, because we're simply not compensated at a living wage um, for our labor. You know, and and it is professional labor. It is a profession. You know what I mean? Um, and it's often not taken seriously as a career. And I think that along with being undercompensated or not being compensated at all for my work has been a huge challenge. It is also very baffling too. I mean, if anything, the writer strike as we are seeing, the writer and actor strike, we are seeing it's, it's a great example of it. We see uh, writers share, share their paychecks, which is like the residual checks is almost little to nothing. And sense, yeah, literal sense, yeah. It is also like an indicator of where this is going, but also with AI, which is a whole nother rabbit hole I'd rather not get into, but sure. it's just an example of where this is leading to the fears and concerns that uh, people in that industry, uh, people working in that industry have about yeah. about where this is going and, and also what the future looks for for stage theater, because if you can't pay people living wages, then how are we going to raise generations of future artists, especially yeah. of color, of of different intersectionalities? And that's something that I think about too. Uh, what does yeah, that look it's, like? It's sort of tragic because um, as you said, like the not being able to compensate people fairly uh, is a valid reason to stop doing what you're doing, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we've been seeing examples of that in the Chicago theater community in particular. Um, so it's it's super valid that a lot of these companies are shutting down and, and closing shop because they cannot pay their workers. But at the same time, it's sad, you know, because like 
we we respect that they are they are following their values and not trying to cheat people out of their work but you know then work is not getting done and opportunities right. are not being you know uh, shared it, it's heartbreaking to watch because there are community theater um spaces that do believe in equitable practices and or at least attempting to make right uh for their workers and unfortunately because of the way it's not it goes beyond the economy but it's the culture it's the mm -hmm. it's the idea that people see entertainment as free and um and accessible which should be accessible but it's coming at the expense of people working behind the scenes and yeah i i find it's just so troubling and i hope that that there are more people seeing and and valuing the the essence of theater and performance art because that's how people make their living but it's also what helps us as a society you know to have these spaces to give us the opportunity to connect uh, to uh, to make community bonds with one another and to see that being taken away is very heartbreaking and i hope that that is not the case so I, i'm glad that we're having this conversation just to at least amplify it and to demonstrate that yeah it's just because um, um, we've reached the point where I mean the co I mean COVID still ex is still in existence, but but it still has an impact on uh, what we're on on the landscape of theater. So yeah, I, I do think that um, twenty twenty uh, did shed light on a lot of issues that the industry. Uh, has been dealing with for a really long time. And while it is heartbreaking to watch, I do think it is a step in the right direction that people mm -hmm. are realizing that they, that one, people should be paid and two, that they can't pay them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's sad to see these companies shut down, but it is important that they realize that people are worth their work, you know, their their month, their work is worth money. Um, so the, the kind of uh, next quest is to figure out how to, how do we raise money to fund projects like that so that the tradition and the you know next generation of artists can go on to create more work you know absolutely and like earlier this year you were casted as the the lead actor in, in tick tick boom what can you share about how you got the lead and what was it like being a musical that was so trans and queer centered <laughs> wow um that what a whirlwind adventure that production was. I still can't believe that it was lit like earlier this year. It feels like a hundred years ago. Um, but that said, I was uh, invited to audition by um, a non-binary casting director in the city called um, Kat Miller, um, who does a lot of really great work for trans and queer performers in the city. Um, and at the time it auditioning felt like a long shot to me. Um, because while I did study acting in school, I did not study the really, really specific genre of American musical theater. And I've never had any singing lessons. So suffice to say, Kat and the other directors on the project had to do a lot of convincing, um, had to do a lot to convince me that I was in fact capable of handling the role. And I'm so glad that they did because um, the experience was amazing. Um, I think it's really easy to forget or to, to brush aside how much like sheer energy 
um, trans folks expend to kind of mask our needs or or general discomfort in a professional setting, you know. So so to find myself in in a professional theater space that was comprised like almost exclusively of of queer people, queer artists, um, was deeply deeply healing and refreshing. Um, and it gave me a glimpse of of what not not just the theater world can look like, but what the world can look like for TGNC folks, you know, like a world that's accepting and and invested in in telling our stories and and not demanding of of any sort of explanation or emotional labor, you know? Yeah, I thought that was amazing because like it's it was hard it's hard for me to believe that it took that it took so much convincing for you to <laughs> to play the role of John because I thought you were brilliant and you you were so full of life i i have to say that anybody who uh did not get a chance to see that performance i mean i thought you were just full of life i mean i saw you in the character in ways that i have not seen from you before so i, I felt like it just brought up so much out of you like it, it must have also it must have also been very validating to have that support from uh, from the cast, from the director, from uh, from the theater to to ensure that this was going to be a success. But what do you attribute the success of Tick Tick Boom to? <laughs> um, that's still kind of a mystery to some of us. I I I think I can speak for some of the others on the project when I when I say we didn't expect to sell out as many shows as we did across the run, um, but. It definitely has to be said that everyone, like everyone involved in the project was massively talented. And this might be obvious, but like a, th a theater production requires, you know, a team that is is much, much larger and much more expansive than just the actors, right? Um, and I mean this when I say it, every single artist in every department was just really good at what they do. Um, but beyond that, I think, I wanna say that the, the turnout each night was, was kind of a testament to to the queer community in Chicago. Like like all communities, it, it has its internal challenges, right? But I feel like overall, Chicago is a is a really great place to be queer in. Um, so that said, the community shows up, you know, uh, especially to celebrate queer success and queer joy, um, and that is really what our version of Tick Tick Boom was about, you know. Um, the last thing I'll say is that I think the the thematic dilemma in the show in the story of sort of choosing between compromise like compromising one's dreams and passions or like persevering against the odds is always relatable to practicing artists so I think people saw a lot in that what positive impact has being in theater been for you and what would you like to see happen for you in the future in regards mm. to theater uh well I I think that theater uh, as a living thing has sort of like cracked me open in the best way possible. Um, like a teacher I had in school once described acting as a sort of sport or athleticism of the heart. And I think making theater, especially as an actor, requires you to really like reach into your own heart and flip it outwards in in ways that you didn't think possible in order to communicate someone else's truth so in that sense it, it destroys your ego and kind of 
encourages you to be brave and to be generous, but all in service of someone else's story. Um, and sometimes that story is, you know, like fleeting or or stupid or painful, but but it's always rooted in connection with other people. Um, and that connection with mm, with fellow artists or or audience members has been really the greatest gift for me. And I think that in the future, I'd love to continue making those kinds of connections. Um, but in all honesty, I'm not 100% sure at this time if theater is the only place that I'll find it, you know? So I'm, I'm sort of interested in looking beyond um, live theater to see where else I can make that kind of connection. Yeah, I, I really hope that there's definitely different spaces for you to thrive into because I would love to see, I mean, selfishly, I would love to see you perform uh, more on stage too, but, but I also think that there's the beauty of what uh, theater can really open up to. It doesn't have to necessarily be in acting. It can definitely be in different platforms that can lead you to different areas. So I hope that that uh, works out for you in the long run. I, I can't wait to see what that looks like because yeah, I think what we, what I just witnessed was just the beginning of many other wonderful things that can happen. I really appreciate that, Randy. Thank you. Yeah. And for me, it's about um, like connection through storytelling, right? And theater is just one medium. So I'm really excited for what else that could mean. And, you know, we were talking about your mom earlier, but I'm also uh, wondering about how has your family been in understanding your own trans and queer identity these days? Mm. Uh, that has definitely evolved over the course of the last five or six years, I'd say. Um, I think one of my biggest regrets uh, is that I was was too afraid of rejection um, when I was growing up around them to share any sort mm -hmm. of uh, part of my journey with them, you know? Um, so once I left home and struck out on my own, like with the support of my partner, eventually got top surgery and, and you know, chose my name and chose my pronouns. Uh, I think I was able to then build the necessary confidence to simply tell my family who I was, you know? Um, so it hasn't all been joy and understanding on their end, but, but I do feel really supported and respected these days, which is all I can ask for. Uh, and, and most of my immediate family came to see Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, and I think um, that something, something subtle shifted for them there because they, they saw me sort of like in, in my power and in success as a, like a trans masculine artist. Right. So it's kind of funny how art can influence life that way. Yeah. I think that is just so beautiful. I, I'm, my heart just melted hearing that because to see, the evolution of it happening. I mean, have to go through all the pains and, you know, have to go through the trauma of having to tell your family and then to deal with this constant tug of war with your family, but then to see, um, to see the beauty that came out of it too. And then, and to see them witness your happiness on stage, you know, to see what you were doing, to see your becoming is very powerful. And I and I wish that for a lot of our queer and trans uh, Asian community members, because I know that even for myself, it's still a struggle. Uh, even when my mom knows that I am a gay person, 
she doesn't really want to talk about it. Like, I think that there is still, like, even at the age of 40. So it's like everyone's got a very different experience. And somehow, as I learned from reading this memoir, there's a really good memoir that I was just reading, Ma, Ma and Me by uh, Pusada Ring. She talks mm-hmm. about that tug of war with her mom, about her confronting uh, being queer and, you know, trying to get married to her partner and her mom really, really struggling with it for so long. and came to a point where she finally had some resolve and I think everything is non-linear but it's also wonderful to see the joy that comes out of these stories too because it does give hope and it does give power to to know that the community the presence of queer and trans community is very powerful to to empower and to uh to empower folks to uh work with or in dealing with family members who are very uh, much struggling with this. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is something pretty particular to East and Southeast Asian culture, I think is this like stuff that's unspoken and um, secrets, you know, mm-hmm. I think the, the, the greatest thing I ever learned in, in therapy when I was younger was like questioning or considering the role of secrets and, and everything mm-hmm. that's said in your family. Um, and I say that without attaching morality, you know, to secrets, you know, like they're not good or bad. It's just right. something that exists, you know, in every family unit. Um, and I think once I accepted that, um, like unspoken things had a, such a great role in my family, I was able to kind of reconcile, uh, with the, discomfort of feeling like I had to say something or feeling like I had to explain myself. Um, So I shifted my sort of strategy in dealing with my family from like finding a way to communicate things to finding a way to just like be myself and then letting them catch up afterwards. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think for them to catch up, because it shouldn't have to be your responsibility to wait and it shouldn't have to be anyone's responsibility for them to have to constantly teach them to to respect the decision that you have to make. But I think you get to a point where, yeah, like you got to be yourself to the point where that if they don't like it, you hope that they catch up to it. And I think that's a good decision that you had to make for yourself. And I think we, I put, at least me personally, I put so much weight on um, the like the act of communicating information. Um, without realizing, at least when I was younger, that the way we communicate or learn to communicate uh, in school in America is different than what our parents are used to. You know, mm-hmm. it's they're they're not used to that kind of communication. At least my parents weren't. So um, when I put less focus on that effort, like essentially using a system, a language system that they weren't accustomed to and just sort of like let myself be, um, it was easier for them to kind of observe and then understand on their own. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for amplifying this too. And the question I have is what gives you joy these days and where does your abundance lie? <laughs> um, that's a hard question for me because I do think, I do feel like times are terrible sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> like the world is on fire and and yeah. you know, the plague is still going on and 
and everyone in charge is a terrible human. Um, but <laughs> that said, uh, my dog, I'm going to say my dog gives me so much joy and it may sound silly, but he, he really does take care of me as much as I take care of him. Um, I'm also I'm also looking forward to the second season of Our Flag Means Death. I don't know if you know that show. It's I have a, not. I have to hear. I have a, to check that out. It is a gay pirate show starring Reese Darby and Taika Waititi, and it's it's like really great. It gives me life. Um, I think abundance in general lies uh, for me in my capacity to to relish in small joys like that. You know, like a silly show about pirates, sweet dogs. Uh, mild weather after a heat wave you know it's all really important um very yeah very important and what are your hopes for the future of trans and queer folks mm. i think that well i've said this before but i think that it is my greatest hope for tgnc folks um that they realize um if they haven't already that they deserve um, a place at the table where decisions are being made um, across all industries and all walks of life. And uh, beyond that, that they already have the power and the support that they need to build their own tables if necessary. One of the questions I usually love to ask my guests is if you had to talk to your, I'm going to pick an age, a random age, 12 year old self, what will you say to that person? Oh man, 12 years. That was a hard year for me for sure. Um, <laughs> I think that I would say that it's okay to be bad at things and it is okay to, uh, Three things. So it's okay to be bad at things. It's okay to take your time. And it is okay to ask for comfort. Any So last question is, any projects or activities that you're working on for the rest of this year? It could be fun little things as well. Absolutely. So this year is a big transition year for me. So mainly I'm focused on finding a, a new apartment in the city, which has been a little challenging with a huge dog and a sassy cat, you know, um, but um, earlier in this year, I, I went to France to visit some family. And before the year is through, I'm planning to visit more family on both the West and the East Coast of the US. So I'm looking forward to traveling. Oh, I have not been to France, but what would you recommend for uh, France? Oh, man. So I have family just out the city outside of Paris. Um, uh, and I lived in Montmartre for a little bit um, when I was in school. Uh, so I have tons of restaurant recommendations if you're interested. But the thing that I did this time that I did not go to last time um, was to visit um, uh, Mont Saint-Michel in Normandy, which is this giant medieval castle, like basically in the ocean. Um, <laughs> so if you ever find yourself in Paris, uh, it's like a it's a quick drive outside the city. And it's a really like fantastic architectural like world heritage site um to visit yeah that would be my 2025 plans so yeah. i have france on my radar and i gotta say i really enjoyed this conversation too and you know thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this and i and i gotta say i've been very proud of seeing you blossom you know over the years and you know just watching your art transform into something that's very powerful and 
again. And also, I really appreciate our friendship. So I want to say thank you so much for being on my show today. Likewise, Randy. Thank you so much for having me. That means a lot to me. Well, that is a wrap for today. And I want to say thank you so much for listening to my guest and for this episode. So be sure to check out previous episodes that you might have missed. And to stay tuned, check out my Instagram at bunmi, which is B-A-N-H-M-I underscore chronicles. Or you can just type into my Facebook page at the bunmi chronicles or on Twitter at M-I underscore chronicles and also before before you leave uh make sure that you send a five-star review on apple podcasts and be sure to uh, check out for any new episodes thank you so much and again have a wonderful day